Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Hey, church. I'm excited that we can share the Word of God today, and today we're going to look at a very important psalm, Psalm 2, and I'm going to call this message, Kiss the Sun, Kiss the Sun. What we want to do today is show how Jesus is the ruler of all the kings and nations of the earth. And so some questions to ask yourself while I'm sharing is, do I only think of Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior? or the exalted Lord over heaven and earth? Do I believe that kings and presidents have the final say, or do I believe that Jesus has the final say over the affairs of people on the earth? And finally, how do I view political parties in light of what I'm about to share? And so we're gonna read Psalm 2, a psalm written by David, And here he says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. They take counsel against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their bands in pieces. Let's cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So Psalm 2 starts off with this powerful phrase, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? It was uh, something that was confusing to David. It was something that he couldn't understand as a God-fearing person. And the fact that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord was befuddling to him. But he sort of answered himself in this psalm. So the questions were rhetorical, not real. Um, So perhaps he wasn't really confused, but he was really stating a question, a question that was merely a proposition that even though he seemed confused, he was framing an argument by answering his own question and giving us the answer. And so he goes on to say in verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces. So the kings of the earth, the counselors uh, that are speaking into them are telling them, don't have any boundaries. Break their bonds, the bonds of God away. Cast their cords from us. So what is God's response? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. He will mock them. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And then he says, you will break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. 
Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And so this is a prophetic, a messianic psalm that was prophesying not only the coming of the Messiah Jesus, but was actually talking about his primary purpose. In order to understand the purpose of Jesus, you can't just look at the last six hours on the cross. That was the culmination of his purpose. But you have to understand the Old Testament. And there are several Psalms that depict more clearly his purpose than any other Psalms. The most two powerful Psalms that we need to understand to know why Jesus came is Psalm 2 and Psalm um, 110. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And those are the two most important Psalms. But then you have Psalm 45, you have Psalm 72, uh, you have Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Uh, so you have certain Messianic Psalms that also tell us uh, important facts about who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do. And so getting back to Psalm 2, uh, the question, the rhetorical question David asks, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? What is he talking about? Well, he said the kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take, take counsel together. Set themselves means there's a plan, there's a plot, there's an intentional array against the ways and word of God. And they are against God and his anointed, which would be Christ. The word Christ means anointed. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word for anointed. And, um, and so we see that the kings rage against the Lord Jesus. They rage against the authority of God. And this was written perhaps about 1100 B.C., and it's as true today as it was then that the kings of the earth and nations, generally speaking, after the fall of man, uh, have become arrayed against God. So sin is not only individualistic, it becomes systemic. But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross does not just affect us individually, it's also systemic, it's cosmic in its scope, which we'll see. And so we have to understand that Jesus didn't come just to die for your sins so you can go to heaven. Jesus came, as we see later on in this psalm, to claim the nations as his own inheritance. And if you don't understand this, you won't even understand why you're born again. You don't understand why we have a church. And you don't even understand the reason why Jesus died and rose. It's not just so you can go to heaven. More importantly, it's so that God could begin his reign now on the earth not just in a church building, but in the workplace, every aspect of culture. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, we see right away the deleterious effect of that with their son, Cain, who is rebellious. And uh, he didn't do what God wanted regarding giving of an offering. And that little sin led to the murder of his brother, Abel. And the result of that was he was cast out of God's presence, cast away from his family. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, it shows that he built himself a city and he called it Enoch. And so 
since the time of Genesis chapter 4 and the time of Cain trying to build his own city, in other words, a whole system of rebellion against God, it wasn't just individual sin, it was systemic, it was a civilization built on a supposed attempt of autonomy, uh, that is to say independence from God, away from God. Uh, God mocked him so nobody would kill him, but he still fled from God and there's no indication he came back to God. And so we see that a whole civilization or a city was built uh, in response to Cain's values of separation, Cain's values of rebellion against God. So unfortunately, the first city that we know of in Scripture and known to humankind was a civilization, a population, a mass of people who were planted uh, in deliberate ways that were outside of God's will, a, a civilization bent on rebellion against God and trying to have independence. So after Cain built that city, then we have another example of that, the Tower of Babel. That's Genesis 11, where God uh, actually had to separate them by giving them new languages, uh, putting them in, in new geographic locations. We see that in Genesis 10. And the reason for that was because he said they unified against him and anything they do will be possible. And so since the fall of man, we have an attempt by humankind to build whole civilizations outside of God's will. Cain in Genesis 4, the Tower of Babel, then we saw Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Rome, the, and in modern days, the European Union, the Soviet Union, China, and now, unfortunately, even the United States of America seem to be arrayed against the ways of God, even though it's more of a mixture there. And so we have these civilizations, we have whole people groups coming together with one thing in common, and that is to build a city, to build a civilization where they don't have to submit to God. Uh, the Tower of Babel was most likely a pyramid. We don't have any record of a tower, uh, but it was probably the first pyramid or maybe the highest pyramid at that time ever built. And its goal was to reach its heights to heaven. And we've seen a lot of the, uh, the pyramids and similar shapes like that, whether it's in Egypt and other places, it had a religious connotation to it, uh, maybe having to do with sun worship or different things, but they tried to reach heaven. The higher they got, the more they thought they were going to get closer to a god or a deity uh, that they would worship. And unfortunately, most of the time, it was not worshiping the true god. And so we see all these attempts by humanity since the original fall of man. And the question really is, why do they rage against their creator? Uh, why do they want to be autonomous? Why do they want to be independent? Why is it, David asked, that they don't want to be submitted to God's authority? Well, even as we see today, the great idol of humankind is not necessarily a god they worship, but freedom of expression. That certainly is the god of this age today. Uh, even more than money, sex, and power is the freedom to have your own identity, the freedom to walk the way you want, the freedom to express yourself, irrespective of whether it's in line with God's Word or not. That seems to be the highest value, the thing that we in popular culture celebrate the most. And so we see this 
uh, God that has been set up throughout the ages and even in modern times. And they have to rage against their creator because their creator doesn't tell us you're free to express yourself any way you want. There's certain boundaries he's put in human nature, whether it has to do with sexual identity, behavior, gender, marriage, family. There are certain boundaries that he's placed. And so when people are told, whether through God's word or through preaching or through a faith like Christianity or any of the Abrahamic religions, including Judaism and Islam, which would agree uh, with Christianity when it comes to some of these boundaries, even though they miss it when it comes to salvation, people rage against this because they do not want to be told what to do with their life. We're dealing with a rebellion based on an idol in their life, which is their freedom. And so all the nations in the world, irrespective of their language, irrespective of their geography, irrespective of their capital currency, have one thing in common. They are scheming against the Lord God. Uh, they have devised plans, philosophies, and even religions that have set themselves intentionally against God. Uh, unconsciously, it's being done through the average person, they're caught up in groupthink, but at a very high level, there's definitely conversations that arise having to do with not being dominated by a Judeo-Christian worldview or the Bible, but this is the society we're going to build, a secular society. Some even argue the United States Constitution was built on a humanistic platform because it says, we the people, so making the people sovereign and not God. But I would argue that the U.S. Constitution refers back to the Declaration of Independence and their anchor is the unalienable rights given to us by our Creator. So you could also argue that they say the year of our Lord uh, and that brought them under the Christian calendar, but they said Lord. So that puts them under Jesus. So there are arguments on both sides, but today's United States of America, uh, with many of its values, especially in pop culture, some of the laws that have been passed are definitely not in line with God and raging against the God of the Bible. No question about that. First John 5.19, it says that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. So it's talking about the systems of this world. Uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan came to him and offered him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, because they were given to me, if you would just bow down and worship me. Some of these rock stars, some of these political leaders have sold their soul. Some of them may be in direct satanic pacts. I wouldn't be surprised uh, with the devil himself to get the power and the fame as long as they would, quote unquote, worship him and not espouse godly views. Uh, but Jesus didn't refute what Satan said. He didn't say the kingdoms haven't been given to you. What he did say, though, is we ought to worship the Lord our God and him only shall we serve, meaning right now I've come to take the nations back uh, because that's what I'm claiming for my inheritance. That's why he told us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth, not in heaven, but on earth now as it is in heaven. And so you have this, this epic battle going on now. The nations of the world are raging against God. They're plotting against God. 
In the meantime, Jesus has claimed the nations as his inheritance, and this is why there is so much warfare, there is so much seismic shifts in the heavens and the earth, there's so many natural disasters, catastrophes, weird things going on, viruses, civil unrest, because there's something going on in the heavenlies, and if you really want to know what it is, it's the nations of the world controlled by the evil one trying to wrest the power away from the authority Jesus was given when he rose from the dead and he said all the authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So that's the reason why we have so much warfare and if you're a Christian you're in the midst of that warfare whether you like it or not you've been drafted in God's army so you better grow up you better wake up, you better mature, you better know his word because Satan's not going to have any mercy on you because you're a new Christian. That's why you better stay in the church. You better stay with those that know more about God than you so you don't become a victim of satanic deception and get slaughtered by the enemy in this epic battle uh, that is more spiritual and ideological and psychological more than physical. Um, and so Jesus had that encounter with Satan. Satan said that he was given all the kingdoms of the world. John, who wrote after the gospel, said all the world, meaning the world system, the economics, the politics, lies under the control of the evil one. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it also tells us that the prince or god of this world operates in the air, he works, the, the prince of the spirit of the air operates in the sons of disobedience. So that is a fact, and that's why uh, Christians have to be very careful that they don't espouse all the values and celebrate everything the world celebrates. There are certain things the world celebrates that we could celebrate. There are other things we do not want to take part in, as then we'll be violating God's word law. Verse 3, these nations that are raging against God say, let us break their bonds in pieces. So they admit there are bonds, there are boundaries, in other words. So they say, let us cast their cords from us. So they admit that when they were born, there was a design, there was a boundary. There was what's called common law or natural law or creation law. We intuitively know that it's wrong to murder an innocent person and yet we have abortion. We intuitively know that it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to commit adultery, but we celebrate adultery, we celebrate open marriage, we celebrate poly, uh, uh, amorous uh, or open relationships, people with multiple partners or living without getting married together. I mean, we celebrate these things on television, nothing new, it's been going on. Uh, since the advent of television in the mid of the, the mid 20th century. Um, but we understand that what we're celebrating are breaking the original intent and design that God had for humanity. And that's why they're literally admitting, let's break their bonds. So the fact that they know that is a boundary given to them by God himself, that makes them even more guilty on the day of judgment. It's not like they're ignorant. And so the people of this world and the leaders, kings, presidents generally of the world, there are some leaders of, the, of world nations that do follow God, but that's the exception, not the rule, and it doesn't mean their whole system is godly or their political party is godly. 
There are some presidents in Africa, for example, who dedicated their whole nation to God, and I think there was a president in Guatemala who did the same. Um, and there are some people that have done that as individuals. It doesn't mean the whole country all of a sudden gets Christianized, and it doesn't mean every system is a Christian or biblically reflective system. But they say, let us break their bonds, and uh, the boundaries God has given us are encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't want to repeat all the Ten Commandments. He's also given us, as I said already, his design of one man and one woman getting married in holy matrimony. We find that in Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis 1 verse 27, it tells us he made both male and female in his own image. So it takes both a man and a woman to reflect God's image. Gender is only binary. There's not a fluidity of gender. I think Facebook has uh, 70 genders listed. Some people claim their gender is fluid. It's like uh, however they feel like every day. Uh, they, today they're a man, tomorrow they're a woman, uh, or they're a woman man, or there's something else. There's so many different genders, I don't understand it. Um, and so we have to understand the biblical uh, boundary is male and female. That is what is made in God's image. And just because we think something psychologically doesn't make it reality. I might think in my mind that I'm Michael Jordan. That doesn't mean I could immediately join uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and play like a 30-year-old Michael Jordan. It doesn't matter what you think or what you believe. What matters is how God designed you and your design is what determines your boundaries and determines how you're to live your life. That's just scripture. And so the world is saying today, we don't want those boundaries. We don't want those cords around us. The leaders and people of this world don't want anything to hold them back. And so we need to understand if we want the blessing of God, we need to walk within the design and boundaries of God. So is God nervous because all this is taking place? Is God grieved? Well, of course he's grieved, and we're going to find out that he is angry. But his initial reaction when these leaders plot against him is not one of fear. He says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God thinks it's humorous. He's amused by it when the United Nations or when some global elite or when some uh, Fortune 100 companies or when some king or president try to plot against God, against Christianity, against his word law, and try to have some kind of victory. God laughs, and then he holds them in derision. He kind of sneers at them. He mocks them. He looks down upon them. He thinks they're crazy. How are you going to fight God? Your arm is too short to fight God himself. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath. And so first he's amused, then he sneers, then he actually speaks to them. And whatever God says comes to pass. That's dangerous. God spoke and the universe came to pass. Jesus cursed the fig tree and the fig tree dried up. Whenever God speaks, there's not just a word. It doesn't, it's not something that falls to the ground. It's not just something that's romantic or sentimental or funny. Uh, it accomplishes its purpose, according to Isaiah 55, verse 10. It never, ever returns 
empty or void, but accomplishes that which his word was sent to accomplish. And so when God speaks and, in his, and distresses them with his deep displeasure, there are decrees that go out that actually cause the earth to shake, cause nations to be reconfigured and moved. And if that isn't happening now, then I don't know when it was. At some point, God spoke in his displeasure with the nations and kings and leaders that have set up laws and tried to uh, disrespect boundaries that he gave by natural law. And he spoke, and we see instances of this where God held court with his angelic beings. Uh, we see this in 1 Kings 22. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. We see it in Revelation 5, where he met with the elders and the living creatures and the angels, and uh, they would make decisions that would affect the earth. We see it in Revelation 8, after the bowl of incense was brought before the throne. And he examined the prayers of the saints, and then uh, there was a bolt of lightning and thunder that came on the earth, and then there were plagues and judgments. So God weighs everything based on the prayers of the saints, based on what humankind does in response to wickedness. And it tells us, thank God, in Jeremiah 18, that a nation can repent, uh, and God will turn away from his wrath. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, thank God it tells us that God will heal the land if his people humble themselves, repent, and turn from their wicked way. Uh, but we see here in this instance, he speaks and he perplexes people in his displeasure. He distresses them. There's some kind of counsel that takes place whenever he desires to call it. And that's when the earth shakes and nations tremble and new things, new shifts, seismic proportional shifts take place in the earth, uh, and then things are never the same. We've seen that after certain world wars, some religious wars, we saw that after 9-11, uh, and we're gonna see that after COVID and after the present civil unrest. Some kind of decree was sent forth, and um, I also believe the enemy tries to have some kind of counsel to counterfeit that and do certain things that are evil in the earth. But God's counsel always wins and always overpowers the counsel of the enemy. And so this is what God says in response to what the enemy has tried to do or in response to what the kings of the earth have done against God. He laughs, then he speaks a decree, and then in verse 6, the ultimate answer, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The ultimate answer for the world's problems is Jesus. The ultimate answer for the unrest in this present day is Jesus. The ultimate answer for all of the shaking and quaking and seismic baking of the world is Jesus. Jesus is God's answer, not just so you can go to heaven, but so that God could reform, restore, renew, and redo the earth. And here he says, I've set my king on my holy hill, meaning there's nothing you can do about it, O king. There's nothing you could do about it, O United Nations. There's nothing you could do about it, Soviet Union, Russia, China, United States, 
Uh, there's nothing you could do. I've already set them on my holy hill. The holy hill represents the kingdom of God, which is the government of God that comes from the throne of God. And God's kingdom has been established. Jesus has been raised. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all the kingdoms of the world. He's been set. He's already reigning, and he will have the final say. And, uh, and then we see uh, what is the answer. Verse 7, he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he set him on his holy hill, and then he decreed that he would now become a human being. And so this is a prophetic word of the birth of Jesus, who is the word of God from eternity, God the Son from eternity, born of the Virgin Mary. As we know in the Apostles' Creed, he was born in that virgin, uh, virgin's womb without her knowing a man in the natural, supernatural birth. And that's what this is talking about. I will declare the decree. This is how I'm going to bring it to pass, meaning this is how I'm going to set my son on my holy hill. First, he's going to become a human being. And then it records what the father said to the son right before he left heaven and became a baby in the womb of Mary. He said, the Lord said to me, the me now is Jesus, the word of God. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, born of a virgin. That is God's response to all the turmoil. That is why we preach the good news that Jesus is not just your personal savior. Jesus is reigning in heaven over all the things of this earth. He and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven affects everything in this life, not just our sins, but systemic sin of the nations. And it deals with economies, it deals with geographies, it deals with politics, it deals with education, art, music, science. And he's using the church to renew the earth by participating with him by bringing his reign into every aspect of culture. And that's been going on for the last 2,000 years. If it wasn't for the church, we wouldn't have hospitals. We wouldn't have an understanding of biblical marriage. We wouldn't have uh, slavery uh, abolished. We wouldn't have universities. We wouldn't have uh, the science we have, the beautiful music we have. All that arose out of a Christian ethic, ethos, and worldview. And so Jesus changed everything, and he's continuing to renew the earth, even today in the midst of this uh, civil unrest and coronavirus. He's using this to reset everything in the earth, including the church. So he said, I've begotten you this day. It was a decree, a, a command that moved heaven and earth. Uh, there have been thousands of books written about the birth of Christ, the incarnation, how he could be fully God and fully man at the same time. There were three councils that dealt with this, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and other smaller councils that dealt with the nature of Jesus. But I find it humorous. We're spending all these years debating, thinking, writing, having all these councils and rightly so, because there's nothing more important than who Jesus is. But God just did it in an instant. He spoke. He said, this day I've begotten you. 
what it may take us centuries to understand God does instantly with his word. That's why there's nothing more important than you getting close to God and being able to speak a word of faith out as long as you are in line with his word and you know his will, you could be an instrument of God's word to help renew and restore human lives and even whole communities as you're part of the church. And so it tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Eventually, every person will bow the knee. Um, verse 9, God says, I'm going to break them, meaning the kings and the nations. I'm going to break them or rule them with a rod of iron. I'm going to dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 8 here. After he was born, it says, Today I've begotten you. Then he said, Ask of me, the Father saying to the Son, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus didn't come just to bring you to heaven. Jesus came to claim back all the civilization, to claim back all the nations. The Word of God is the most practical book ever written about how to live on the earth. Jesus didn't come to rescue you from the earth. He came to use you to renew the earth. Instead of praying for escape, you should pray to engage the earth. That's what this is all about. So he came to claim back the nations for his inheritance. Then he says, I'm going to break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, meaning all of human history is his story. Uh, if you study the history of nations, even secular history, you'll see God's hand in all the nations. We see it in the Bible how God judged even nations that were not in covenant with him. Amos chapter 1 and 2 deals with non-Jewish nations like Ammon and Moab and uh, others, Edom. We see Jonah being sent to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. We see God displaying his glory in Egypt during the time of Moses. We see Elisha being called father by uh, king of Syria in 2 Kings. Uh, God has always had a witness outside of Israel throughout the nations. He's always dealt with their future. In the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah, there were whole chapters devoted to prophecies related to whole nations that were not even Israel uh, or Judah. And so all of human history depicts his story because he controls, he has the final say over everything. And that's what this is talking about. You're going to rule them with a rod of iron. And when we look at human history, we're going to see nations and empires come and go. We see how God set up the USA supernaturally after the horrible oppression of England. Uh, we see how God caused Nazi Germany to lose the Second World War, even though they had the most advanced tanks and planes and uh, the machinery and technology that nobody else had. But God's hand was in them losing. Uh, we see how God caused the Soviet Union and Eastern Germany two powerhouses, superpowers, uh, up until the 1990s, how they dissipated almost within a few weeks. 
and God may yet cause the USA to crumble if we continue to point our finger at God, turn our backs on him and his law. The United States is not exempt from the judgment of God. It says that he rules the nations with a rod of iron and he breaks them into pieces like a potter breaks the pottery with the potter's vessel. So we need to humble ourselves. We need to pray and cry out for a great awakening. We need to pray that God turns this nation back. And so because of this awesome power that God has, what is it that God expects kings to say and do in response? Verse 10 tells us, it says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. So the book of Proverbs is not just for us. It's the book of wisdom. It's for kings, for all those in authority. It says, Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Isn't that incredible? The Bible is specifically for judges and leaders and influences of culture, not just for people, uh, you know, average people in the church. It's for everybody. Uh, salvation and the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ was for people who lead nations. His eye is on them. He's going to hold them even more accountable. And that's why he says, um, serve the Lord with fear, verse 11, and rejoice with trembling. If you are a leader of a nation and you're hearing this somehow, you should rejoice in the Lord, but you should do it with trembling. You should serve the Lord with fear. This is a call to kings. That's the context, a call to nations, a call to presidents and mayors and governors and community leaders and billionaires and leaders of multinational companies and industries. This is a call to the most influential people in the world, the people who go to these private secret gatherings once a year to determine what they're going to focus on and push. Uh, uh, these words are warnings to those kind of people. And the more influence you have, the more God is going to hold you accountable to his word law. And so judges, kings of the earth, are instructed to be wise. What is the biblical definition of wisdom? The Bible says the fear of the Lord or the respect of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 1, 7. And we find that, again, in many other places in the scriptures. Leaders should take time to know God's word. Uh, there's actually a command, if you want to look it up in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18 to 20, a command that Moses gave to future kings. And he said, you need to write my word by hand. In other words, I don't want you just to have someone read you the Bible. I want you to write out my law by hand so that you will get it in your spirit and memorize it. Deuteronomy 17, very powerful. So that you will not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left and that you may prolong your days in your kingdom, you and your children. And so, boy, if I was a political leader, I would spend time in his word. I'd want mature Christians around me. I want to be instructed regarding God's view of ethics, morality, what God expects from me as a civic leader, because all power ultimately is derived from God. I'm just an under-shepherd if I am a political leader, elected official, or community leader. And this is why Jesus is called the King of Kings, uh, very powerful. He's not just the head of the church, 
But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is something we should memorize. Verse 12, it says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, not an accident, he mentions a king, a prelate representing Rome, that you keep this commandment without spot, blemish, or wrinkle until our Lord Jesus is appearing. That's the second coming, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, it's not the president, it's not the king of Saudi Arabia, it's not the queen of England. There's only one potentate, and it's not the Roman Catholic pope. One potentate, that's Jesus, and Paul calls him here the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings is the most political statement you could ever make. Jesus is not merely a spiritual ruler. He's not merely a quote-unquote religious leader. He's the King of Kings, meaning he has much to do with politics and economics and education and the flow of commerce and communities as he does with the affairs in the church. He's the King of Kings. He is the governor of all governors, the mayor of all mayors, the president of all presidents. And he holds them accountable to his word law, whether they believe in him or not, or whether they like it or not. He's the king of kings. It's the most politically charged statement you could ever make. He's not for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. He's for himself. He's for his kingdom. And any party or any individual elected official who lines up with his word law, he lines up with them. It's not the other way around. And uh, it tells us in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 6, He alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Every king and ruler of this world is going to live a short life. They're like a vapor that's here today, gone tomorrow. Their kingdom, their dynasty, their family generational tree, their money, their power. It's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. But Jesus alone is the everlasting king. That's why we better get with it and surrender ourselves to him. In closing, what should our response be, whether we're a king or just a, a person mind their own, minding their own business, living their life in the neighborhood. Verse 12, this is the response that God demands from kings and from all of us. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss means to pay homage. Uh, it means that you bow down, you take his hand, you kiss him. Or as the woman did in Luke chapter 7, she kissed his feet, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair pay homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the smartest, it's the wisest thing you could ever do. It says, lest you perish in the way and his wrath, when his wrath is kindled but a little, but blessed are those who put their trust in him. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He's great enough to save you. He's great enough to heal you. He's great enough to take you from the darkest pit the darkest of darkness. He can deliver you from any sin, any addiction, any form of lust, anything that's gotten a hold of you. He's Jesus. He's Lord of all. And he has dominion 
over all things, no matter what the world says. And so as I end this message, I want to ask you the question, have you kissed the sun or are you doing your own thing with your own life? Are you part of that conspiracy against his rule saying, I'm going to throw off his bands, his boundaries, his chains? Are you part of that conspiracy against the Lord and his anointed? You say, no, I'm not part of that because, uh, uh, you know, I'm not part of any political party. I'm not involved in any of that. Well, Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So if you're not serving him, you are part of the sons of disobedience that the prince of the power of the air controls. You are part of the group of people that array themselves against God. And the only way out is to submit, to kiss the son, give your life to Jesus. And then, and only then will he transfer you from the kingdom of darkness, the domain, the power, jurisdiction of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his son. If you want to give your life to Jesus, you could pray with me right now. If you believe that he died for your sins, that he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. If you believe that, then the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you're willing to call upon the name of the Lord, and make that decision, why don't you pray this prayer with me now? Say this prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to die for me. Jesus, come in my life. Save me. Forgive me. Cleanse me with your precious blood. And give me the power to follow you all the days of my life. And according to your word, I believe I am now saved. Well, if you just prayed that prayer, it was only a decision. But Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. To continue in his word, you need a good church, you need people around you, and so if you're serious about what you just prayed, please connect with our church. We'll walk with you and we'll help you connect with other believers so that you'll be able to grow and mature in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.